Amen. Thank you, ladies. Nice song. Good job. Go ahead and get in your Bible if you would. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. A few weeks ago, we started a lengthy new Sunday morning series on great texts in three great Bible books. Uh, I would hope many of you will read if you have not read through the Gospel of John, but I know most of you, uh, even if you're well-intentioned, will not make it through the Old Testament books of Isaiah and Jeremiah. They are more difficult to read, more difficult to understand, but I do want us as a body of Christ here, I want us to have some kind of a flavor of what those great books are like. And so, Lord willing, over the next many months, we will be jumping back and forth between uh, great texts in Isaiah and Jeremiah and the Gospel of John. Last Sunday morning, we talked about the coming kingdom of Christ and Israel. We talked about the earth returning to its original fruitfulness when God purges Israel and Jerusalem because the peace of God always follows cleansing from God. It does not precede it. We talked about fighting the feeling of hopelessness. And it's very easy with the news cycle being what it is and everything going on that's going on both in America and our world, it's easy to become hopeless. And we need to fight that because God is in control and he restrains the wrath both of man and devil so that ultimately in the end his kingdom will come and his will will be done on the earth even as it is in heaven. And we talked about the sure promise that Jesus Christ will come again. That is our wonderful and blessed hope, at least if you're a believer, it is your blessed hope. I hope you understand this morning that everything God chose to inspire and preserve in His Word is important. Every word matters. And though all the Bible is there on purpose, there are mountain peaks of truth that rise above the others, mountain peaks of Scripture, not because they're more inspired or better preserved, but mountain peaks rather because the truth presented is especially clear, especially important, or especially applicable to you and I living today about 1,900 years after the great apostle set his quill done and about 2,700 years after Isaiah. I personally believe America to be the best, if not one of the best nations on our planet. But we have some real problems. One of the problems in America is that most Americans haven't been anywhere else in the world. And so they have no frame of reference when they gripe and complain about what goes on here. Poverty is a problem in America, but poverty in America is nothing compared to poverty in most other countries. There's a reason millions of people illegally come here and America's not building a wall to keep people in. I have been to Nicaragua and in the dump of the third largest town in Nicaragua, a city by the name of Manag uh, Matagalpa, there's a city dump and there are human beings who live in the dump with their family. And they make their living picking up plastic bottles from the trash of the second poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. That's how they make their living. In contrast to that, just up the street in Westchester, they opened a luxury pet suite where dogs and cats, cats can have a literal bed and TV in their room. It's only $48 a day unless you want an upgrade. 
And you can upgrade for up to $50 extra a day so that your dog gets more treats, more playtime, and an extra potty break. But the opportunity for wealth and ease in America is not enough. It's never enough for some people. Government in our country is becoming increasingly intrusive and lawless. But the problems with government in America are nothing compared to the corruption in government in most other countries. In many other countries, it's just standard operating procedure that if you have anything to do with the police, you bribe them, or if the judges are involved, you bribe the judges. Most other countries, I should say many other countries, if you travel there, it's pretty much standard procedure for things that belong to you to somehow end up missing after they go through customs. Took a group of people to Mexico many years ago to do some ministry there, and not surprisingly, all the puppets we brought and all the sound systems just disappeared. But people being treated well by the vast majority of law enforcement and justice and judges in America, it's not enough. For some people, it's never enough. Churches in America are becoming increasingly lukewarm and compromised. But the problems in churches and the lack of American Christianity's influence for good in our culture is still better than it is in many nations. In many countries, believers can't even freely assemble. In some countries, believers are actively pursued and persecuted if they're discovered. You may not realize this, but one of the missionaries we support, there's a $1 million bounty in his head. I mean, not only will they execute him if they find them, they'll give the person who turns him in a million dollars. Some of you would turn me in. But us being free to worship as we please and there still being good churches around is not enough for some people. It's never enough for some people. I'm not implying we shouldn't face the things that are wrong and improve them, but I wonder if we've lost sight of that which is still right and still good to only focus on that which is not what it should be. I wonder if we're not too focused on what we don't have instead of what we have. Did you know God did great things for the people of Israel on many occasions but it was never enough for them. You're able to stand, if you would stand, please, this morning in honor God's Word. Tell my thought is it's never enough for some. It's never enough for some. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. He fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine, built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. He looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitant of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. 
And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned nor digged. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord is the, of hosts is the house of Israel, the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, and for righteousness, but behold, a cry. Thank you, you might be seated. Anyone who is familiar with the four Gospels and the message of Jesus of Nazareth knows that at times he taught people using parables. Some people call a parable an earthly story with a heavenly application. Parables, really, they're just fictional stories that could be real, but they're fictional, and Jesus used that story to teach some practical application. Now, sometimes when we read parables in the New Testament, they are interpreted for us, and whenever a parable is interpreted for us, we, of course, know exactly what the message of Jesus is in that parable. Other times, parables remain uninterpreted, and you and I are left making our best guess of what Jesus meant using the context in which he taught the parable or truths from other places in the Bible. I hope you understand parables are good places to illustrate Bible doctrine, but they are bad places to get Bible doctrine. So we know about the parables of Jesus, but many are unaware that the Old Testament prophets used parables at times as well. In fact, what we read just a moment ago was Isaiah teaching the people of God with a parable. Now, fortunately, we literally just read the interpretations of the symbols in the parable, and so it leaves the point that Isaiah is trying to make, or more accurately, the Holy Spirit is trying to make through Isaiah. It leaves that point without question. Notice in verse 7, in this case, the vineyard, the land where the vine is planted, it's the house of Israel, verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Notice in this case, next, the vine, the pleasant plant, is the people of Judah. It says, and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. Notice in this case, the wild grapes, which the vine produced, is oppression and a cry. That's the end of verse 7. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression, and for righteousness, but behold, a cry. So the good grapes are judgment justice, and righteousness. And the wild grapes are oppression and a cry. So he's interpreted the symbols of this parable for us, and now that you and I have the interpretation of the parable, you and I can go back and study the parable and then move on to making practical application of what God is teaching us here today. In fact, many of you who are more serious students of the Bible, as we read that Old Testament parable of Isaiah, your mind may have went immediately to a very similar parable that Jesus told about a householder who planted a vineyard, who wanted to get the fruits of his vineyard, but remember, they beat the servants that uh, he sent to get the fruit of the vineyard, and then he, last of all, remember, he sent his son, and they killed the son. You remember that parable? It is a very similar parable to this one that is taught in the book of Isaiah. Now, notice as we begin to Think about what the scriptures teach here, uh, that Jehovah was the well-beloved of the people of Israel, uh, verse 1. 
says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. Now, God being the well-beloved, God has always been the well-beloved of some of the people of Israel. The physical seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, some of them have always believed and some of them have not. And those who believed look at God as being their well-beloved. Well-beloved just means specially loved. Listen, it is not just true today, living under grace, but it has always been true since God spoke the law of Moses a law, his laws through Moses, that the greatest commandment of all has been to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. And those who had faith in God in the Old Testament and, and hungered for God, they loved God too. That's not something new. God had and still has a land and a vineyard for the people of Israel set in a fruitful place. Now while all the earth and the fullness thereof belong to our God, that land in a special way, belongs to God, and it pleased him to give it to his people Israel. Now today, that place isn't very fruitful. In fact, it's mostly desert because of God's judgment on the land. But there is a day coming, like we talked about last week, when that land, that desert, will blossom like the rose. Notice next that God did many things to make that land in Israel special, with the potential for fruitfulness in verse 2. says, And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. See, God supernaturally gave the land to Joshua and the people of Israel uh, to possess it and took it away from the Canaanites. God planted Israel, the choicest vine. He put them there with the intention of them being fruitful, to produce grapes, justice and righteousness, instead of wild grapes, oppression, and a cry, a, a shriek of distress. Notice then God calls the audience to whom Isaiah spoke, he calls them to judge, to see if God had been fair with Israel, and to see if Israel had been fair in responding to God in verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. By the way, if your mentality here this morning is that you should never judge, understand you have been duped. Believers are commanded to judge righteously. We are supposed to take that which we can see with our own eyes and hear with our own ears and compare that to what is written to know what is right and wrong and anything in anybody's hearts, whether it has to do with their motive or how much condemnation they deserve, that kind of judgment belongs only to God. And God calls his people here to judge between him and his people. Had, been, had, had God been fair to them? Had they fairly responded and returned to God in like manner as he had given to them? Notice then God asked them, what more he could have done. What could I have done, God says, so that you would produce grapes instead of wild grapes in verse 4. He says here, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. 
Why, God says, when I have done all that I have done, why did you not produce grapes? Why not justice? Why not righteousness? Why instead did you produce oppression? Why instead did you cause people to shriek or cry in distress? Why, after all I've done for you? Listen, God miraculously and supernaturally, He formed their nation. It was God who supernaturally called them out of Egypt and slavery and bondage there at the hands of the Egyptians and miraculously gave plagues and signs and wonders of all sorts to deliver them and form them. God miraculously gave them laws. He gave them judgments and statutes and commandments, moral laws and government laws and civil laws. He established them. God did all that for him. He spoke audibly to them from Mount Sinai to give them all of that. God, in the wilderness, he gave them manna six days a week. He led them by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. God did so much for them. He brought water from the rock. God did all kinds of things to show them he was God, to show them they were his people. And God says, why? When I have raised up great kings and great judges and great prophets, why, after I've given you clear truth, why, after I've done all these supernatural things, why would you return to me wild grapes, oppression, and a cry of distress instead of justice and judgment? He'd done so much for them, not just over the centuries, but in their life. But to them, it wasn't enough. It was not enough to move them to produce the fruit that God was seeking from them when he called them out of Egypt. So because of the continued lack of faith and their disobedience, God, through Isaiah, says basically, listen, judgment is coming upon you in verses 5 and 6, and now go to, I'll tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'll take away the hedge thereof. It shall be eaten up. Break down the wall thereof. It shall be trodden down. I'll lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain, uh, no rain uh, upon it. Uh, listen, though the land was unconditionally a promise to the physical seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their covenant to stay in the land was a conditional covenant linked to their obedience. And God here says, listen, I've done all this for you. You have not returned fruit to me like it's compensated or proper in light of all, all that I've done. I'm bringing judgment upon you. And if you know anything about biblical history, you know that all this was literally fulfilled when the Babylonians just came and destroyed everything and took Judah captive. Though a lot of people shake their fist at heaven and God's moral commands, no one has ever won a fight with God. There are people here this morning, you're fighting against God. You know what God wants in your life and you just won't do it. You know God wants you to believe and be saved and you just won't. You're not going to win that fight. You're saved and you know that God has a plan for your life and he's got some things he wants you to do as a follower of Jesus. You know what they are, but you just won't do them. 
you're not going to win that fight. Though many have, over the millennia, believed and not believed in Jehovah, the God of the Bible, no one has ever got away with it. And through the nation of Israel's 3,500 up and down year history, listen, Israel has never and will never prosper rejecting Jehovah God and the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Messiah. Well, I'd like to do this morning for a few moments now that we understand this parable. Remember, it was interpreted for us. What I'd like to do is just make some practical application and observations from this great parable in Isaiah. Here's number one. It's a wonderful thing to love and sing to our great God. It is a wonderful thing to love and sing to our great God. In verse 1, he says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. You know, one of the things believers did in the New Testament when they assembled was sing. By the way, that's why we sing when we assemble. Paul said to the Ephesian believers in chapter 5 and verse 19, he said, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Paul told the Colossian believers in chapter 3 and verse 16 that believers should sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. And though our relationship begins when we place uh, our faith in Christ as Savior, our relationship with God, God hopes and wants everyone who believes in Him to ultimately grow to decide to love Him. Hear me when I say it is impossible to deeply love God about whom you, whom you know very little. You can love the idea of God, but you cannot love God unless you know who He is. And God's intention is that we would learn of Him and that we would decide, you know what, I love God for who He is. And He wants us to sing to Him. Let me ask you, do you sing when we sing? Do you sing with your heart? Is your heart elsewhere when we sing? <laughs> I can't tell you how many hundreds of times I've looked out during singing and, and people are just talking. I mean, it isn't like you started a conversation, we were shaking hands and had to finish it off to be polite. I'm just talking, man, they sing through the next song and halfway through the next one. Listen, that's not why we're here. In fact, it isn't really what, just what you sing when you're here. What do you sing when you're away from here? It is your music, it is your songs that you sing. Uh, 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 do they bring honor to the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, far too few believers, you, you think you're exercising your liberty, and you do. You do have liberty to sin. <laughs> but what you, in fact, are doing when you sing songs that grieve God is you're grieving the Holy Spirit that lives in you, and what you're doing is hindering the fruit He wants to produce in your life. I, I'm sure there are people all over the room, and, and you would sing Taylor Swift that ungodly woman, you would sing her songs with all your heart, and then you come in here and you mumble. So I like Taylor Swift. Listen, you sing what you want to sing. 
But don't think that what we do and what we choose and whether we sing songs that honor Christ or whether we sing songs that honor God and whether we sing with half of our heart here, don't think for a minute that the Holy Spirit doesn't care. Did you know the longest book in the Bible is actually the book of Psalms? Did you know that the word psalm means song? And so the book of Psalms is a book of songs. Do you not find it interesting? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, uh, but I would really wonder how many people in here have read through the book of Psalms. It's one of the easiest books in the Bible to read, but I, I would wonder, anybody who says, well, this is the kind of worship music I like, I wonder if you've ever asked yourself the question, how do they compare with the inspired songs? Have you ever found it unusual that the inspired songs in the Bible are characterized by doctrine, they're characterized by history, they're characterized by practical applications and difficulties that believers face in life? They're not characterized by repetition. There is some in there, but there's not characterized by that. Have you ever wondered how in the world that American Christianity is so enthralled with repetitious so-called worship music and all the inspired songs are not like that? Has anybody wondered, you know what, maybe this music is about the people, not God. Listen, worship is not about me. Singing is not about me. It is not about my taste. It is not about what I like. Music and singing, first and foremost, if it's the kind of music when we're singing to the Lord, should be about God and what God wants. Hear the psalmist inspire us to sing to the Lord and to love the Lord our God in song when he says in Psalm 95 too, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. Hear the Spirit of God say in Psalm 98, 5, sing unto the Lord with a harp, with a harp and the voice of a psalm. Hear him in Psalm 105 too, say sing unto him, sing psalms unto him, Talk ye of all his wondrous works. Hey, listen, I want my heart to be stirred by the Spirit of God, not my flesh. You will never stir the Spirit of God and his passion when you are stirring your flesh. And so the parable begins with Isaiah exhorting those who believe and love God to sing to their well-beloved. I don't know how many songs there are to other religious leaders. I tried to Google it and I couldn't really figure out the mess. I don't know how many songs are there lauding the praises of Buddha. and I don't know how many songs there are lauding the praises of Confucius. I don't know how many songs there are lauding the praises of Muhammad. But I got a sneaky suspicion it is thousands and thousands and thousands less than the tens of thousands of songs that honor and praise the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just that it's a wonderful thing to sing to and love our great God and Savior. Here's number two. God expects us to return some fruit to him in light of what he's done for us. Verse two. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein and he looked 
that it should bring forth grapes. What was his desire? That it would bring grapes. And instead, it brought forth wild grapes. See, God has done so much for each and every one of us. God has been good. God has been good to America. You ought to just, if you were born here, you ought to just thank God that he put you in America instead of in one of the lower classes in India. Hey, God picked where your soul would be planted. I'm not pretending we don't have problems. I'm just saying, listen, you ought to thank God for his goodness to you of putting you in America. <laughs> God has been good. And he wants fruit from the crowning jewel of his creation. By the way, that's mankind. Uh, only man is made in the image of our creator. Mankind is the crowning jewel of all creation. And God wants some fruit from us. Which brings up a great question. What does my creator want from me? By the way, that's a philosophical question. And because so many people, they don't really want the answer to that. They don't want to face the answer to that. They choose instead to ignore the obvious and just say, well, I'm an atheist, there is no God, or I'm an agnostic, I don't know if there's a God, and if there is, I'm just not sure what he's like. Hey, listen, the Bible's just real clear. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. So why does God talk so strongly? Because you have to be foolish to look out at the complexity of biology, at the beauty of nature, of the intertwined way in which everything fits together and say, eh, it's all an accident. God wants us to first acknowledge that he exists and choose to receive his son. Keep your hand there. Turn up a few pages to Isaiah 53. Probably, if you are familiar with one place in Isaiah, this might be it. There's probably five or seven that most biblical Christians know something about, and this is one of them. But notice... Jesus Christ sacrificially died for our sins. Notice this prophecy 700 years before Jesus was born, beginning in verse 3 of Isaiah 53. And I want you to notice all the times he says he. This is not about Israel. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That's a Testimony of the way Jesus lived. Verse 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hey, this is not a prophecy of Israel's suffering. It is a prophecy of a Messiah who would be striped and bruised and carry the iniquities of us all to his cross. Only Jesus. 
Hear me this morning, there's no salvation outside the Son of God. Like it or lump it, Jesus Christ is the only Savior. He's either a blasphemer and foolish and ignorant when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Or he's the Son of God and the only way to eternal life. I mean, think about it. If God could have had a religion, if there was a religion that would have given people eternal life, God would have spared His Son. If there could have been some good work that we could have done that would have brought us forgiveness, God would have spared His Son. If there was anything that could be done, any religion, any deed that could spare people the flames of hell, God would have spared Jesus, but there is no other way. That's why He is the only way. By the way, if you're here this morning and you've never humbled yourself to call upon and believe the Lord Jesus Christ to receive Him with a repentant heart, today's a good day to do that. He loves you and He died for you. But it isn't just that God expects fruit from us because He wants us to believe and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing God wants from us is He wants us to be thankful. Listen, it is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. Have you ever thought about this? It is impossible to be thankful unless you make note of you not deserving the things you have. Most people are not thankful people because they feel like everything they have is really the product of their hard work and good decisions. And I don't debate that hard work and good decisions make a lot of difference in how many things we'll have. But I want to tell you this morning, if you have any ability to work, if you have any health to work, if you have any opportunity to work, it is by the grace of God. If your house didn't burn down last night, if your water heater didn't blow up, if your car, if you have one, made it here this morning, that's by the grace of God. If you have health and ears and eyes to hear and see me this morning to come to the house of God and you have intellect to decide whether you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or follow him. Understand it is a gift of God. If your IQ has three digits instead of two, it is a gift of God. If you are born and you even have one parent that cared about your life, it is a gift of God. If you have anything in life, it's a gift of God. And until you and I first acknowledge that we have nothing that's good that we actually deserve, we'll never be thankful. Now, you might naturally be a thankful person. I'm not. I'll tell you up front that being a thankful person is something I'm always working on in myself. And I personally, I like this week, and one of the reasons is it forces me to just pause, to on purpose, step back, and think about what I have. Do you realize there's some people who would say to you, they don't have one single person that loves them? Do you realize there are some people who wish they could just one time roll out of bed and take a step? God expects us to return some fruit. There's a story told about a little boy named Johnny wrote a letter to God. He asked in the letter, God, would you give me $100? 
the local post office. They didn't know what to do with the letter, so they sent it to the White House. The president's secretary happened to see the letter, thought it was cute, so she sent the little boy $5, thinking it would make him happy. After the boy saw the return address at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue with only $5, he wrote a thank you back to the White House to that address, and here's what his second letter said. Dear God, thank you for sending me the $100 I asked for, but why did you have to send it back to Washington in the White House? Those bums deducted 95% for taxes, and I'm mad about it. Are you a thankful person? God wants us to be thankful. He wants you and I recognizing all that he's done to move us to bear fruit. He's done everything he could. Do do you realize that? No one will be in hell and it's God's fault. God has done everything he could and remain a just and holy God to keep people out of hell. I mean, in essence, that's what he's saying in in verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 5. And just go back there real quickly. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, we see, why then? If I've done all I could, why? When I looked that it should bring forth grapes, why did it bring forth wild grapes? When God looks down and says to you and I, I had my son Jesus suffer and shed his blood and die for you, rise again from the dead, how can you decide to reject him? When I loved you before you loved me, when I gave everything so that you could live forever, how can you live your life so selfishly? How can you not care about the Bible? How can you not care about the church? How can you not care about souls? After all I've done for you, where is my fruit? How can you live for the pleasures of this life? How can you live just to have a bigger 401k? How can you live just to be the star on the ball team? How can you do that in light of all I did for you? And I ask you the same question. God gave us so many things. Life. Freedom. And he wants us to return something to him. And it's a reasonable request. Will you do that? See, what does he want? Well, if you're not saved, he wants you to be saved. If you're saved, he wants you just to come to the the realization that it's not just okay to be saved, to have fire insurance when you die, and then to live your life like Jesus barely matters. Can can I just say this? Uh, God never will tear a ligament and be out for the season. Say, Brother Wally, don't you watch the Bengals? I do, but I had no hope in them, and I would not miss one thing. We have people who won't come to church because they want to be sure they're home in time to watch a Bengal game. Can you imagine that? Someday you're standing before God. And God said, I gave Jesus for you 
and you look up here and say, well, you know, that pastor was mean to me. What, what did I do? Well, the people at church weren't nice enough. But what did I do? Well, you know what? I loved sports, and I just wanted to enjoy them. Okay, fine. What about God? What about God? And God teaches us here in this parable, in this Thanksgiving season, that we ought to be thankful people and return some fruit to the God who gave so much to us. Amen? If you'd quietly stand.